2022, one day at a time. Day 12 has arrived and we are building towards the second round. The last day but one of action in round one. Algeria looking to book their place in the next round. Do they get the result? Well, they get the result of the way today. France, well, they do book their place in the next round. And we're going to hear from Honduras and Yugoslavia. That's the later game on the show. Kieran O'Hara, how are you? Hola, Rob. We're getting red cards today. We're getting red cards 12 days into a tournament where GBH has been committed in several games. <laughs> it's a hell of a thing, yeah, isn't it? It's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. It's yeah, like they just like, don't want to... Oh, no, you don't, you don't want to ruin his World Cup. I won't send him off. He's only severed two limbs and, and a part of his skull. Yeah, it's... It's that Monty Python sketch with the knight that's left, but, you know, yeah. whatever. Gone, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this podcast know that sketch intimately, so I don't need to go into it. But it's gas because, like, the ref- the referees have been getting a fair old slate in the media as well, like, around this tournament. So I wonder, did someone have a word and say, start flashing some cards, lads? There are some there are some key incidents, though. Certainly the one I was watching, I, I it's off the ball, but you get the feeling there was a punch. Anyway. Colin Sheridan, how are you? Habibi's great to be here. Uh, really excited about Algeria. Uh, really feel the bright uh, future in this tournament after watching them tonight. So yeah, I'm all in. I'm all in on on my favorite North African football team of, of, of the moment, Algeria. Yeah, I think. Do you know what? Because they're so full of goals, we're going to make them the one team that we'll guarantee you can watch. In I'm, the second uh, yeah, round. I'm, I'm down. I've got the jersey. I've got the jersey coming in from retro jersey. Paul Galvin is designing a, a Algerian jersey for me as we speak. Right on, Kevin. Kevin's back, and Kevin Gorkin's back for quite a seminal moment in his uh, one day at a time uh, career. He is here, and Scotland aren't here. How are you, Kevin? Hey Lance, how's it going? Yeah, uh, looking forward to talking about France against Czechoslovakia, a country that no longer exists. And also, uh, don't you worry, I'll still manage to find some sort of way of wedging in a Scotland reference at some stage over the next hour or so. <laughs> yeah, we should probably check who the referees are, should we? Or the linesmen? Yeah, yeah, it might be a good call, actually. I think we'll be... We'll be talking about the referees somehow on today's games. Well, will we just get stuck in? I mean, the tournament continues afresh. It's France, Czechoslovakia first up. France one, Czechoslovakia one. Make afternoon football. Oh, with English speaking commentary on our feed. Woohoo! Thanks, Rob. I thought you were going to forget it was here. Um, I tell you, do you, do you, uh, I tell you, yeah, English. Hold on, I introduced you and no one heard me. Well, including, <laughs> including me. Um, the, uh, I don't know, I don't know. It's, yeah, English speaking commentary was great, actually. For France, Czechoslovakia, we got a young Martin Tyler. A young Martin Tyler at the top of his game, might I say. A man with a keen eye for, uh, for, for analysis, I must say. I agreed with almost everything he said. Uh, not that that means he's a keen analyst, right? But he, I, I, t- I tied in pretty good. Uh, we're sitting back with me, Marathon Baron, Super Can of Lilt. I'm, I'm trying to properly engage with this 80s thing, you know? I might get out the Commodore. And here was me thinking you'd have been Wolf and the Tenora. <laughs> Should we still have Tenora? That's, that's not retro at all. Me Super Can, though. I, I exhumed a Super Can that I put I, in a time capsule. Like, Kevin Gorker watches all of these with Iron Brew in hand. That's you, Kevin. He's denying all. Confuses the answer. <laughs> 
it's it, it's a it's an afternoon game with a buzz with a Czechoslovakian side that have to win, I believe. Kieran, is that right? That's 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 the fact of this one. France only need a draw, and Czechoslovakia absolutely must get the win. Doctor Joe has to work his magic and get this team through to the next round of the World Cup. The French have kind of recovered since we last encountered them. Yeah, like it's interesting to watch the evolution of this French team because again, this is you know this is one of the joys of doing this thing. Like I mean, from twenty twenty two when we when you hear of France eighty two, you just think of a glorious team, almost a ready made team, you know. But the reality is so totally different. Like we we had discussed it before the England game that they came into the World Cup on the back of a very dodgy qualifying campaign. A lot of flux in the team, and the flux has continued. Like So the team that lines out against Czechoslovakia, there's five changes from the team that started their first World Cup game against England. So it's, you know, it's still a team in it really, really trying to find itself. But like like Kieran said, we saw traces of form against England that carried on into the Kuwaiti game. And even looking back, which I can't believe I'm going to say this. I actually have done it. I've gone back and had a look at some of France in the qualifying campaign. And it's kind of similar. You can see little flashes of cohesion, this brilliant cohesion. And you see it again against Czechoslovakia. Um, like the Czechs, in fairness, come out in this game and they really go after it. But they just don't have the quality. They, they're well able to keep the ball and they get it so far. But they just lack any real serious cutting edge. Whereas the French, when they get the ball... Uh, and if they get it to Gires and Gengini in the middle of the park, they're, they immediately look dangerous. But it's still not, for me anyway, I know what Kevin thought about it, but it's not for me a sustained effort from France, but it's more than enough. They draw the game, one all. It's more than enough to get them through. As, as Mick says, it's not really, if you think if you think back to France 82, the first thing you think of is Platini. And you think of the, the famous French midfield, but that famous French midfield doesn't really click in until the European Championships two years later. The car magic, the magic circle, or the magic square, they've got uh, Fernandez comes in, and Tigana blossoms, and Gires and Platini, other guys. That's the great French team. This is just, they're still building the blocks for that. They're not quite there. But you can see it in little flashes of Platini just being a fantastic football player and Jures is probably the best player in the pitch in this game. So you can see it coming, but they're not quite there yet. This is They're having to find a way to win games and get through the, the sequence of the competition, but they're not quite this French flair team that you would remember in, in the in the, in the back of your head. I'm, I'm going to get in the first movie reference of, of today's episode. Well, won't, won't be the last. So... Didier Cease, or Six, as he's called in the commentary, scores in the 66th minute, giving us our first Omen reference in three series. Well, you, you, you make that sound like it's, one, it's something we've been waiting for? Ah, yeah. Well, we've been well, waiting for the devil incarnate. <laughs> Kieran, it was my only note on the game, and you just ruined it. <laughs> All right. I get my coat. Was like, they took it off your toe, son. They t- yeah, took, he took uh, it off your toe. Yeah, Actually, a little, a little bit like Cease's goal. Yeah, a little bit like true. Cease's goal. True. Uh, which is, uh, he finishes, a, is it Lacombe? Wasn't it Lacombe? I think, I think it was. But it was a cross from Amaros that the Czechs don't really clear. 
uh, two headers kind of up in the air. And at that point, Lacombe just bursts through, suggesting a handball maybe when he controls it and he slides it past the keeper. But it's kind of rolling. And I was even watching going, is it going to make it? It should probably make it. But Didier Six uh, comes in and just makes sure it makes it. And Lacombe has actually turned away celebrating his goal already before before Six has put it in the net. Like I'm, So I'm, I'd say, no. I'm Lacombe in this scenario. The yeah. dressing were, were not pleasant. Yeah, I'm the calm in this scenario, Mick. I was, I, I was turning around. I was celebrating before this podcast started, and then Kieran just, yeah, wiped my eye. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> the one, the one thing I loved about the goal was that, and now in the world we live in, football wise with VAR and all that sort of stuff, this mm. goal would have been analysed for minutes, and there would have been discussions about whether yeah. uh, the ball so was handled uh, by. Yeah. The face player going through Lacombe, or whether yeah. Cease was offside before Lacombe had the shot and all that. But they just get on with it. There's no hassle. There's no grief. There's no check protest. The ball's in the back of the net, and we move on. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it saves a lot of time. It's not that we don't have protests in this World Cup, though. El Salvador, yesterday, Honduras, a little bit later today. Well, I don't want to spoil that, but yeah, Kieran. I know, like, France have shown something in patches, but, like, 80 minutes of this game is dire, okay? Um, and it's only when the checks are, like, they know the plane is, like, the steps for the plane have been pulled up alongside the pitch. Suddenly they start playing. Uh, and they dominate that last 10 minutes and get a penalty. Mm. And the, the disappointment for me, this is the second Panenka penalty of this World Cup. And I just want him to do it. Just step up and do it. But no, it is the most boring Penenka penalty in history. Oh, that's Colin just putting up a note to say that was the only note I had on that. <laughs> Number two. <laughs> Good point, I have, I have written point. down Didier's teeth, 66 in inverted commas. Penenka, what the F? No Penenka. Not a Penenka. <laughs> I swear I don't have a, a spy camera in your home. Yeah. This is this is Penenka's last ever game in international football. Wow. And he scored one really? penalty in the competition already. And then he scores this penalty. And like you say, you're waiting for him to have the little dink that he's famous for. But it never happens. He just comes up and slaps it in the bottom corner and it's 1-1. The one thing I was going to say was Penenka comes on as a sub... I was about to point as a sub a minute before the French score their goal and then they throw him on. There's a lovely shot of Venglos and Panenka walking along the sideline talking to each other and you look like some kind of washed up 80s kind of cop duo. Well, it's asking Hutch gone wrong. Like Venglos is there in the ill-fitting suit and Panenka's um, there with the, the, the track suit top on and the very, very bad mullet and the sideburns and the whole shooting match. They look, they look they're completely typecast. Hey, look at that last minute chance they have. I'm just reminding you of it. Look at look at this. Like it's chaos. That's Panenka's last. That's Panenka's last touch. Panenka's last touch of international football was that free kick, which then there's a bit of kind of the ball bouncing around the penalty area, and I think eventually Amaros clears it off the line. The checks could well yeah. go through. Oh, like they were literally they were literally a header away, and Amaros like not again, not a tall man, uh, heads it off the line. But I was Kevin. I was the exact same as you. I was looking. I was looking at Panenka warming up and thinking to myself, like in twenty first century, he does not look like an athlete. He actually looks like he's walked off the set of Boys in the Black stuff. 
He's like he's like a Czechoslovak Yasser Hughes come become ask him for a job. Yeah, gives the job, and like he's he's um he's amazing. He comes on and he, and and, and Venglots actually second movie reference of the day. There was a shot of Venglots early in the game. He's sitting back in the. Uh, in the dugout and the, the shirt is kind of unbuttoned at the neck and the tie is pulled over to one side and the jacket's half hanging off. He reminded me of the Jack Lemmon character in Glengarry Glen Ross. Like he was just so stressed. He just needed to make a sale, needed to get a goal, needed to get a win. Like they were, um, they brought up, yeah. But I suppose in fairness to Paninka, he can't really Paninka every penalty, can he? Because he, although to be fair, Ettore, the, goal, the, the French so goalkeeper, boring, I know it was so boring. boring. He drove it into the right-hand corner. Like, but Ettore, to be fair, because I would argue, I would argue the first the first penalty he did in this World Cup was a little bit of a penenka. I'm sticking by my argument that there was something there. There was, there was a little some, bit. There was some dinkage. There was definitely some dinkage. But like he, uh, like Ettore, practically ran out of the way. I mean, he he obviously, as was the style of the time, he moved well before the ball was struck, and more or less gave Paninka about ninety five percent of the goal. To he didn't even ha- he didn't even dive actually at all. <laughs> he was gone so far the wrong way there was no point. But uh, he'd actually just gone to put a, bring a book back to the library around the corner. Basically, but like two lads. But you know, this also tells you something about the Czechoslovaks in this work. I was actually quite disappointed with them. I thought there'd be more about them. Like they've scored two goals both penalties in this world in three games like this is the European champions of 76 they were third place they won the third fourth place playoff in the Euros in 80 in 1980 you know I thought there'd be a bit more about them but they didn't really bring it did they but uh, yeah they, they, only the two goals in the whole competition and of course they should have been in they had a real chance to get to Argentina in 78 but they were beaten by Scotland in the qualifying campaign. Um, magnificent 3-1-1. There it is. That's the Scottish yeah, yeah. yeah. champions out of the way on our way to that World Cup. There you go. I knew you'd done it in some way, lads. I knew you'd done it. Dr. Joe is the man that brought Lubo Moracic to Celtic, so I won't hear a bad word against him, despite uh, his ill film suit and dodgy tag. Friend of the podcast, Kevin, as you well know as well. That's how it's and done, Mick, getting your reference in. Kevin just went for it. He didn't hang about yeah, it just wedged it in. No matter yeah, what way, yeah. it, it you know what it wasn't even it wasn't even needed. But yeah. he just wedged it in there, and suddenly, and suddenly you're thinking, "Geez, that can't, we couldn't have actually had that conversation without him saying that." I know you throw the book to tell or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it, it very subtly, make just you know brought in the subject of height while talking about Amaras, and I know where he's leading with that. Yeah, I'm obsessed with this. Oh yeah. Segway. I'm obsessed with this. What's Sorry, your no. problem with a short keeper? I don't have a problem with a short keeper. I just note that there are a, a, a number of short short keepers in the French squad. I just I just went down a rabbit hole with this. This is the kind of thing now that really you have to stop and take a long hard look at yourself. In the course of looking at that, as I mentioned before, it's day twelve. Uh, we try not to. Listen, day twelve in the Big Brother house, and he's starting to obsess over French goalkeepers. <laughs> it's time for an intervention. Um, like there was, it, like when I went down that wormhole, just checking the the team and the qualifiers, and Jesus, I was asking myself, as I say, some hard questions. I started to notice that their goalkeepers were were changing a lot. So by now, by now, including the World Cup qualifying campaign itself, France have had five goalkeepers either in the squad or actually used during the qualifying campaign. Wow. So they started, I'll keep this brief, but they started with a guy, a brilliantly named goalkeeper called Dominique Dropsy. 
Uh, what a name. <laughs> that, that may he be was, the most unfortunate goalkeeper's name ever. It's something else. He was in for the first four games of the qualifiers, right? But he let in, and I had a look at it. It's it was it was decreed to be a softish free kick. I think it was by Arnold Muren, if my memory serves me right, against the Netherlands in one of their qualifying games. Now it is a bit, it is a bit dodgy in the same way that Ruffy's uh, kind of kind of st- standing still statue moment against Brazil. Well, Dropsy kind of runs over to the to, to the post trying to scramble the ball up, but it hits off the post and goes in. It looks messy. Anyway, they played one more qualifier against Belgium and he was gone. Next up was a guy called Pierrick Hiard. He played one game against Belgium, messed up a cross that Belgium scored from and didn't even move for the second Belgian goal again in their qualifying campaign. I don't think he ever played France again. Then a chap called Jean Castaneda, who played for Saint-Étienne, he came in. Now, he was a veteran of the 78 World Cup, but they lost faith in him, gentlemen, after France lost to Ireland and Dublin. He was the two goals, two of the Irish goals were considered complete blunders in France. So Castaneda was kind of lost to that. Now he was kept on for the rest of the qualifying campaign, but by the time the World Cup came around, we had Castaneda in the squad, Jean-Luc Ettore in the squad, five foot nine of them. Uh, and they brought in Dominique Baratelli. Now Dominique Baratelli played for Paris Saint-Germain. He was another veteran of the 78 World Cup. Uh, Castaneda, by the way, was had, had gone to Argentina as well. But Baratelli had a few more caps than everybody else. He had also saved four penalties in a Coupe de France semi-final against Tours the previous month. Or no, that might have been the April, actually. And then when they got they so he played for Paris Saint-Germain. Paris Saint-Germain got to the final against Saint-Étienne and it went to penalties again. And he saved the decisive penalty against Christian Lopez. So suddenly he jumped to the top of the tree. This is the longest goalkeeping rabbit hole in history. Sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. And it's it's all coming down basically to say. And all I wanted to say was that Ettore is five foot nine. He was the third choice keeper going to Spain. But Hidalgo flipped the cards on everybody and stuck him in goal. And to be honest, He's all right, but he doesn't look great on the crosses. What I want to know is, is there a dinner party anywhere in the world, even in France, where in the corner of it, at some point in the night, there will be a robust and entertaining conversation about the five different goalkeepers France used in the 1982 World Cup at some point? Uh, I, I want to know if there's a dinner party that has all five of the goalkeepers. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be something? Oh, well, now, now that's a podcast, right? Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, that, that, and, just, I'd listen to. and just to finish it off, to be fair, right? All of these guys, if you look at like, as I did, oh my God. If you look at like any lists of top 10 French goalkeepers of all time. Oh, Jesus Christ. All three. Make all three of, multiple books, folks. I know. He's a very busy it's man. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> it is, how did he do that? It's just, it just shows you how... how it's just it just shows you how little time I want to spend with my actual family. Um, it's it's <laughs> like all three goalkeepers are in these top tens, and they've all played like hundreds and hundreds. I mean, Etori, I think holds the record. He was over six hundred appearances for Monaco. He was a one club man. But look, he's five foot nine. Martin Tyler, it's superb about it. Martin Tyler just makes the point that he was the third choice keeper, but he also makes an interesting point that the French in midfield do not have a good defensive anchor. They don't have in modern parlance a Fabinho. They have all these terrific players, but if you get at them, they are get atable, which I think really gets to the nub of it. I'm going to throw this to Colin and Kev. We've finally, finally seen a red card in the 87th minute of this game. Mr. Vizek. I presume he murdered somebody. What does he do that's so ill that he has to get a red card? 
I'm, I'm going to let Kevin take this one only because I'm curious. It mixed all my uh, two A4 pages of small goalkeepers. Five goalkeepers. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants those notes. Go for it, Kevin. Right I, 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 I took that on because no one else is going to take it on. The story of the five French goalkeepers. I took one for the team there, man. My reputation's in tatters after that. <laughs> You've got the Schumacher book, though. Bring it out if it's all falling yeah. apart. Right? Kids don't think I'm cool anymore after that. The level of research from Mick is outstanding. Uh, right, it's uh, chilling and terrifying, Kevin. Yeah, chilling and man, terrifying. The only thing I knew was he's five foot nine because that's what Martin Tyler said. That's the only thing I knew about. But anyway, uh, the, the guy that gets sent off uh, in the last minute or so uh, is is it Bishek? Yeah, Bishek. Yeah. Yes. So what happens a minute before this sending off? Is it Soler, uh, one of the French players, gets involved in a kind of handbags, kind of tete-a-tete with one of the other Czech defenders. So, and there's a bit of a clash of heads going for a header and there's a bit of a pushing and shoving. And he starts doing the whole, oh, um, I've got a sore head. The referee actually waves the physio away from coming on to help this player who has a head injury, which if you think well, now about no football... Now, you think my name football is completely different. Then they give him the smelling salts and he reels back about 25 feet when someone's about to shoot him. And that's the end of that, you think. But in the next passage of play, obviously there's still been a bit of chat about something. And as the ball is cleared, Bijek and Seller have a little bit of a coming together, shall we say. Bijek just takes the legs right off him, right in front of the referee. I think he's about one yard from the referee. And the referee immediately, boom. Red card. Oh no! Sorry, go? I have to add. I had to add, add to that, Kevin. There's also afters after the tackle. So there's the tackle, and then as they're moving away, Visha kicks him again. And just to you know, just, just to, to make sure. cherry on the parfait. Yeah. yeah. So the question is, uh, is does Senior Carbini give him the red card for the two kicks, or because they were too close to him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could miss it. Let's put it that way. They were right next to them. Oh. I was going to just say one more thing about the, about this game. As Kieran said, it was dire for most of it. I think I, I fell asleep during the first half at one point. Uh, watched it. Watched it back. But Martin Tyler's commentary, as Mike mentioned earlier, was fantastic. The bit that really entertained me was a bit during the half time, which you yeah. normally don't ever get to to hear. And I, I work in TV industry. That's my job, and I've heard a million commentators chatting back to the studio at halftime. And you've always got to be very aware that all mics are live and you could say anything that could get you into all sorts of trouble. Martin Tyler is the consummate professional, chatting away, chatting away, but he gets involved in a chat about the Kuwaiti players and their game the following day against England and how they're observing Ramadan. And some of their players won't be eating from uh, dawn till dusk, uh, which is all very, very entertaining, very interesting. It's the best part of the game. It's brilliant. It's brilliant because he he tells us he tells us that there's five Kuwaiti players who are doubtful to play because of because of Ramadan and because they actually obviously make five changes for that game. I know we're skipping ahead to the next episode, but they do make five changes. Yeah, well, this is a real and happening thing. So I mean, you know, Ramadan, you you fast from dawn till dusk, and uh, there's a concern that five of the players they can eat. And this is, you can tell that this is slightly bewildering, Martin Tyler, that they can eat uh, the day of the game, but not the day before. 
So he's kind of a bit bewildered slightly of, of this about this, and he's teasing the guy back in the and back in the booth or back in the truck or wherever that you know. It's kind of like your eating habits, Tony, or whatever his name was. And uh, but it's fascinating, absolutely. Kind of, I, I was, I actually went. To, I was kind of jumping through the to get to the second half, but then I heard Tyler talking, so I rewound back again to hear what they were going to say. <laughs> and the other thing is, in in the world of the World Cup now, where every game is live on every channel and all that sort of stuff. In the UK, there are three games on this day. Only one of them is live on TV, which is the later match, which is Yugoslavia against Honduras. The other two games are highlights. So Martin Tyler's in a commentary for a highlights later in the day on ITV. The BBC only have a late programme at 11 o'clock at night. It's unthinkable now you'd have three games in the World Cup and only one would be shown live, but that's the way it is. Actually, one more thing before we move off of Martin Tyler's in 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 between halves conversation, he also says that the Kuwaitis are a joy to deal with off the field, that they were great mm. to kind of, you know, media wise. And they told him all about this Ramadan issue with the five players and whatnot, but um, terrible losers, very, very, uh, not the most gracious losers in the world, which was a little bit interesting. Well, one thing I wanted to pick up on in this, this is a, am I right in this? This is on in Valladolid. Valladolid, yeah. Valladolid. Yeah. Valladolid. And, and this is where France played Kuwait. And I, I missed this at the time in the Kuwait game. But the scoreboard is manual. Like there's somebody physically oh. taking the number out and putting the next one in. At a time when, what, what did we discuss in the first episode? Like how much ludicrous money did Barcelona oh. spend on the big scoreboard? And here we've got it. Good old, old school stuff. Slip the slate out. Oh. Slip it up. Escape to victory style, Karen. Nice There's the spot. reference. Nice spot. Number three. All right, we'll move on, will we? Unless someone has one other thing. Um, um, do you want to say something about the scoreboard? No. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mick, did you have something? No. Uh, well, just Joe Venglas. Um, oh, yes. Just Joe Venglas. Not much, not much yeah. to say, but just, I mean, obviously people, particularly Celtic fans that have I presume they have an affection for him. Not oh, sure Aston yeah. Villa fans have a huge amount of affection for him, but um, he this was this was him done really with Czechoslovakia for a bit. He went off to Sporting Lisbon the following year, but he came around to the the Czechoslovaks again in nineteen ninety for the World Cup, and obviously at Villa and Celtic. And interestingly, actually, he was the first manager of Slovakia. He was a Slovak himself, so you know, a man with a dis- very very distinguished uh, coaching record. I I am a bit disappointed though with the team he uh, he delivered to the eighty two World Cup. I have to say. But he's also this, he keeps coming up in this tournament when you hear like British managers talking. Oh, my pal Joe Venglas, like Steen and you know what I mean? Well, he's a bit, he, he's, he's, a, he's a bit of an Anglophile, isn't he, when it comes to football? Like he, I think we mentioned in a previous, um, in a previous episode, he had gone to all sorts of English clubs kind of studying and he thought that the English defensive style was very, uh, very adaptable to, to the Czechoslovak game, and he was very interested in trying to do that. Harry Catterick, did he go to Everton with Harry Catterick? And Ron Greenwood was a buddy, wasn't he? Ron Greenwood, yeah, was Ron Greenwood's a pal as well. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, clearly, you know, he'd obviously spent a bit of time watching Wimbledon prior to this world. <laughs> Algeria three, Chile two. All right, game two of the day, another afternoon game, also not on television, as Kevin pointed out earlier. It is Algeria versus Chile, and for some reason, by an anomaly in the draw, Colin, we gave you one with goals. Yeah, yeah, Rob, I'm sure that was uh, 
that was something that uh, listen even a broken clock tells the right time twice a day it's not what they say yeah. so yeah finally got what I deserve but uh, listen I know you spoke uh, a good bit about the Algerian story coming into this World Cup um, mm. and it's something that as I was watching this game and reading as I was watching uh, it just was it's 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 an unbelievable story coming from where they came from from the uh, Obviously, the war uh, ending in, uh, a couple of decades before uh, the, gaining their independence from France, going through this period of uh, through the football as regards what the the, that the football had meant through the, uh, the as part of their freedom movement, um, playing all these exhibition games, all their players who many of whom were already contracted in. Uh, France for a lot of high-profile clubs, including their manager, Rashid McLuffy. And I know you, you spoke about him as well. His story is incredible. Um, so he was a manager, obviously, in 1982, but a, a very pr- prolific uh, footballer at Saint-Étienne in France until he returned to Algeria and uh, played for the uh, the liberation team, effectively, um, these exhibition games. And, uh, you know, effectively, they were stateless doing it. Anyway, I know I'm, I'm kind of going back over old ground, but really got sucked into the story as I was watching the game. And understanding what was on the line for them um, after their unbelievable victory against Germany, messing up against Austria. So clearly they had to win this game and for goal difference purposes, put as much uh, distance between themselves and uh, Germany and Austria, which were, who were playing bizarrely the following day, which I know is something we're going to talk about uh, later on. Like I said, reading beforehand, watching, was super excited to see them and... Yeah, this is a game of uh, goals, surely. Uh, quality, questionable. Um, that said, it never resorted into... It, it had more of a... It was a very honest game of football. I'll put it that way. Uh, based, uh, you know, uh, in, in the context of this World Cup and a lot of the games I've already watched. Like, both teams, like Kevin said there, there was like... Uh, about um, the French game. Like, there was no... There was... If there was fouls... People got up, picked themselves up, and just got on with it. Uh, if there was bad decisions, they just got on with it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So given what was at stake, um, it was a pretty honest game. Uh, standard. I mean, the thing that that they was played in the middle of the day, as you say, Rob, and obviously both teams being from uh, countries well used to warm weather. I, you're going to think I'm making this up. I had made a note about Ramadan, and I had looked back, and it was the second day of Ramadan, I think. So probably lucky in the sense for Algeria and uh, Kuwait, Kuwait later on that the, uh, Ramadan had only started at, the, at this point. Um, That's outstanding research. Yeah, I know. But again, yeah. it's, got, it's got ruined. It got ruined. Like Kevin ruined it. <laughs> Martin Tyler ruined it. So I'm just having no luck here. And I know I'm already talking about an awful lot of stuff. But the, listen, this Algerian um, story. Oh, come here. You, like, why are you honest football? Why? Why does it feel well, like that? I, I, I don't know. It's it's Maybe it's the atmosphere in the ground, first of all. It's an on and Oviedo. Um. I don't know what you think of these stadiums. I love these stadiums. You know, they're yeah. they're real throwback. But I, I, like, I'm assuming these matches are like early, late afternoon, early evening. But it's obviously roasting hot. So there are periods of like low tempo in the game, uh, which both mm-hmm. uh, teams uh, respectfully observe, uh, and they give each other a bit of space uh, that way. But yeah, it's 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 a bit like Kevin was saying earlier about the French game, where there's just none of that kind of dramatic. You know, the referee isn't getting crowded out. Yeah, decisions are accepted. Lads are picking themselves up and getting on with it. And um, 
not even that. They just both teams are genuinely trying to play. Both teams. And like Algeria go 3-0 up in this game after 60 minutes. 3-0 up. And bearing in mind like how important goal difference is to them. And Chile weren't like three three goals worse than Algeria for the for the first 60 minutes of that game. But um like particularly the yeah, some of the defending obviously for the for the goals, and we mentioned that just before we came on. Like Salah Assad scores twice for Algeria. Uh, we various ways of, of describing it, but one of them is genuinely it's, it's like the kids are all following the ball over to one side of the pitch, and he just cuts back in, and all the Chilean guys have gone one way, and he just cuts back in the other. It's it's like early PlayStation football. Um, it's, it's a sensible, they're, they're, sensible soccer. It's a sensible soccer goal, yeah. and and the second one is a carbon copy. Carbon yeah. copy. Now I have to say, maybe it's the kid in me, but I love the cutback for the first goal uh, because oh, yeah. I mean he easily could have gone himself, but it's just the wherewithal to just yeah. kind of cut it back to him and the run, and also like uh, Assad's run for that goal, as in it was an interception, and in, you know in the kind of Chilean attacking third of the pitch, uh, Assad it starts the move. And uh, he finishes the move. Uh, unbelievable athleticism to that Algerian team. And again, a lot of them. This was uh, you may have mentioned this in, in, in the in their in the Germany podcast, but like this was their first, I think, World Cup playing with our campaign. You, you know, playing with professional players. So there was a lot of pressure on these players. Clearly, you know, they were a golden generation of Algerian footballers. Um, and you had to have to say at this point, after beating Germany. Um, okay, hiccup against Austria and leading Chile 3-0 after an hour that they were fulfilling that promise. Um, so I have to say, like, super impressed with, with their their size, their athleticism, their willingness to play football, despite, you know, the heat. Uh, fatigue clearly becomes a factor for them in the second half of this game. Um, Balumi, who was their, their kind of the standout guy against Germany and, like, probably their greatest ever footballer, is and I couldn't get the reason why he didn't play, but I'm assuming it was injury. He was on the bench, but he didn't play in this game. It didn't it didn't hold him back. But a sad for me. That was my knock, Colin. That was your knock, Colin. Oh, I mean, you got one, you got yeah, one back. I one, got one, one, one back. You know, <laughs> one one. I'm gonna just absolutely destroy Foley's notes now for the last game. Just read them out for Batum. <laughs> but uh, no, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, but it's 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 for me. It's just it's building up. That this Algerian team were a team uh, that uh, obviously we don't know what happens to them yet, but they're a team that could cause an awful lot of problems going forward in this tournament. The thing that's just so impressive about them um, is just how they reacted to the previous game. So, like they get the famous win against West Germany when they play very much like they do in this game. It's it's athletic, it's fast, it's aggressive, it's it's they really go for it and they're a joy to watch. And then the Austrian game, it's almost like it's almost like the tightrope walker who looks down and realizes, oh, bollocks, you know. Uh, they just they freeze against Austria, really. And like the World Cup could have been gone from there. It could have been gone from them. And it's not, I don't think it's that Chile, you know, fall off. Because I'm, I'm also a fan of the Chilean team. I really enjoyed them in the first game against Austria. That was a right whole scrap. And we've spoken about that a couple of times now. It was a, it's a flawed game, but it's a very, it was a very engaging game, and they just got, they just got steamrolled by a German team that couldn't do anything, only bludgeoned them. They had to bludgeon them, but they, you know, so the Algerians are coming against a genuine, a genuine team here, and they played so, so well. And you see all the players that were so good in the first game; they're all good again. You know, Magier, Assad, uh, actually Ben Saula is fantastic up front. What a player! 
you're just going, I love these guys. I love these guys. And actually, back to a point that was made in the previous episode when we had a bit of a, a, a snap. We had a bit of a set to about Cameroon and what and what what sort of represents a decent minnow performance. Well, Algeria bring everything to this. They bring it all to this ambition, you know, confidence, and they're really going for it. And it's, you know, either a terrific team. Um, I was actually just going to ask because, you know, I'm conscious, even though we're all watching this for the first time, well, most of us are, you still have that context of, you know, results or certain results and you know what happened to certain teams. But I really loved watching Algeria. And I just wondered, Kev, at the time when you were watching that now, and you've just said this game wasn't on TV, so you're probably working off the highlights. But were they like the Cameroon of 1990 in 82? Like, was that what what it felt like? You were willing them to be the little team that could? Yeah, because if you you think about... World Cup's previous, like the African teams hadn't really covered themselves in glory. You think it's a year in 74 and all that sort of stuff. The, kind of, the boys running out and kicking the ball away from the free kick and all that kind of comedy stuff of they're not, they really shouldn't be here, but they have to be here and all that sort of stuff. This is the first World Cup where there's two African teams qualify for the finals. And Cameroon for all, Cameroon 1990 are completely different to Cameroon here, obviously. But Cameroon here are undefeated. They've gone through the three games in a tough group and haven't lost. And this Algeria team have won two out of their three games, one of which is against West Germany. That's the thing I remember. Like I said, it was only 10 and 11. But in my memory, I remember the celebration of the winning goal against West Germany because that was everywhere when it happened because it was such a big, huge surprise. But the fact that the first World Cup with two African nations, they both equipped themselves more than well. Cameroon equip themselves well, Algeria go above and beyond that. And that opens the door for the next World Cups to have more African representation. And as you know, like Cameroon are the first ones to really take that by the scuff of the night properly in 1999. To, to, to put it in context, or even, or even think about you know the snobbery of football, um, you know, world football and, and what we all kind of grew up with, especially in the, the English game, if you, if you will, or the European game. Um, and obviously, we always had this idea of what South American footballers were like. But to think of what, what, what Algeria were on the cusp of here in 1982, as Kevin says, you know, you had only two African uh, nations in this. Cameroon kind of played a certain role, that fulfilled a role that we probably fulfilled ourselves a little bit later on. Um, in that we, you know, we were trying to survive as much as anything else for Algeria weren't trying to survive by the way they played football. Yeah. Uh, and and like to think of what might be ahead of them in this tournament and what person, what, like this is 1982. Like this, this is, we're, we're still some ways to the globalization of football or of us, uh, you know, like we would have had no clue, for instance, about the French league and these Algerian players and North African players in the French league. Like but think about it, like Zinedine Zidane was what, probably seven or eight years of age uh, in the South of France, uh, watching this with his Algerian-born parents. Um, but, like, we had no clue of, or we would have had no clue of what uh, they were as a footballing nation. And, like, I still think there's a there's a degree of snobbery about that as regards North African countries, Middle Eastern countries, and they're football mad. They are football mad. We think sometimes we have this monopoly on being, like, football matters to us. Um 
But and then you see 150,000 watching Al Ahly and Zemelec or something. Yeah. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. And and not just that, and not that, but like I was in South Lebanon the last World Cup. Yeah, 2018 Russia. Gee, like I still haven't figured out what the sociological reasons for were, but in a small little town, Tyr, just a couple of miles north of the Israeli border, like this, the, like the place shut down, and I'm not exaggerating, shut down. I, we used to watch games from my balcony because of all the TVs set up on the street, um, and like it was insane. Uh, I, you know, it, it was insane to me. And there are similarities I know that, like, for an awful lot of the North African nations, the Arab nations in, in North Africa, for that. So for me, watching this and reading uh, a lot of, uh, about this Algerian story, and like even like Albert Camus, the you know famous Algerian French philosopher, who had sort of uh, a difficult relationship with the liberation uh, side and with the war in Algeria, he himself was football mad. Wrote essays on football, was heavily influenced by football, and for all his sort of uh, famed struggles with the meaning of life, he said one of the things that gave him you know, which simplifies things an awful lot for him or his, his beautiful place to go to, as he put it, was football. So, um, yeah, I, I think just watching them in this tournament to think what might have been ahead of them or what might be ahead of them coming out of this game, uh, it's it's just a fantastic story. Yeah, you can only imagine what Camus would have made in the next couple of days. But, it like, it's so exciting right now right to, to consider where algeria could go because i mean the, the the second phase john we'll talk about the second phase and how it's all put together another day but it's been preordained before the tournament so everybody knows where everyone is going depending on where they finish so they're looking already they're looking at going into a group more than likely with england if they get through Ooh. and i mean algeria the, are going to semi-finals at this one they're they are on the brink of something enormous right um all they have like they're sitting back now and basically tomorrow, if it's a draw, they're good to go. Um, but it's interesting in the post-match press conference where the conversation goes. Instead of sort of um, celebrating the great performance, most of the press conference is spent denying rumours that an Algerian millionaire had paid Chile to throw the match. And there was a counter-allegation that the Austrians were offering Chile a bonus to beat the Algerians. Um, now... Rashid Maklouffi, who Colin mentioned earlier, the the Algerian coach, and as he as he outlined there, such an icon both of Algerian football and the Algerian independence struggle, and how those two things uh, interacted with each other down the, in in that period and since. Really, I mean, these guys remember like these guys who were over the team were absolute heroes to the players as well. The bond between them was so strong. But McLoughy described these accusations anyway as an insult to our honour. He said, we have nothing else in mind than to keep the rules of sportsmanship. And I hope everybody was convinced after our 3-2 win over Chile that this was a normal match and there was no question of making any any arrangements whatsoever. Now, I'm given McLoughy's background and everything that he went through as a player, I'm inclined to believe him. From the Chilean side, Lewis Sentibanez, the, the the manager, also denied these these allegations that Chile had received an offer of money from an Austrian uh, delegation. He said, we've received no offer whatsoever. Nobody has offered us any money. I suppose he didn't say we wouldn't have taken it. But anyway, he's saying, you know... Any indication of the nationality of the journalists asking those questions? And in light of what we might <laughs> see further down the line, could we be seeing an early case of deflection? Uh, no indication, Kieran. They're just straight quotes. 
but I can certainly look into that a bit closer. Uh, funny enough, you should say it, McCluffy had one more line before I forget it. He did make the point that I only hope that tomorrow's match between West Germany and Austria, which of course will decide everything, will be as clean and as normal as ours was today. Now, uh, we we're know... We're obviously expecting... We've been saying this for some episodes now. We're so looking forward to the fair... <laughs> Equitable. It's Austria. going to be a hell of a game. Austria, I mean, West just gonna... Germany, yeah. yeah. I've been waiting for this all Henry week. Tells. Like, this is yeah. it. Like, to, local rivalry. The Austrians with chance. Should the Austrians, what would be better than to beat West Germany and beat them up a stick? Huh? What? Ah, stop. I can't wait. I, and just to set the scene for what Mick is describing there in the post-match uh, press conference, I guess when Algeria who need to win and win well are 3-0 up again after an hour. I mean, maybe without watching the games and if you were just looking at the cold facts of it on a page, you might, you know, you might argue, oh, this there might be some merit to some of the suspicions. But as the game then transpired, of course, and Chile grabbed two goals back, not through like, okay, the more than a thing, Algeria fade, I think. Fatigue is a huge factor for them. The footwork for the Chilean penalty is uh, particularly impressive, uh, but like in the last moments of the game, this has to be one of the one of the only games I've ever seen where a ref actually blows it up, like oh, mid attack, like not even mid attack, but yeah. Chile are like nearly have a, have an box. overlap in the box, and the ref blows it up. So to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't like it doesn't stack up now moments before that moments before that Chilean attack like Assad is denied a hat-trick by the post and you could see that how desperate the Algerians were they were still all, uh, t- attacking I think it was Assad anyway with the post like in the 88 or 89th minute um, they're still pushing on they're still trying to get the extra goals and they're a little bit desperate because they'd let themselves down obviously giving away the two goals but yeah Chile were like going for this themselves um, I always got that sense and uh yeah, I, I think you're right about the deflection piece of all of that. But uh, certainly get those two goals are absolute killer blows for them um, in the sense of they were cruising as you would be at 3-0 and the next thing they were under pressure, like literally in the last attack of the game. That, that's the one thing I was going to say about the, when the final whistle goes. Like Algeria have been fantastic. And as you're saying there, they, they kind of fatigued a little bit. And Chile are almost making it 3-3 as the whistle goes. So there's delight for Algeria but it's tempered I think by the fact that they know the 3-2 probably isn't going to be enough if things go the wrong way the following day. The other thing that struck me was as they're walking off the pitch there's like a spontaneous organic round of applause from the people of Oviedo who I think must have appreciated the fact that this was a bit of a blood and guts game and was entertaining to watch and all those things but I think it's because Algeria kind of people took them a bit to their hearts in terms of the way they had played and the fact they'd beaten the Germans and all that sort of stuff. I think that was a genuine, it was like, it was lovely to see. It was something that was absolutely organic. All these Spanish people you could see standing up and give them the big round of applause on the way off. Very good stuff. And just to set the scene for that enthralling contest that's coming between West Germany and Austria. I'll just give you the lowdown on the table at the end of this game. So Austria are on four points with a goal difference of plus three. Algeria are on four points, but obviously Austria and West Germany have games in hand. 
their goal difference is zero. They've scored five, conceded five. So those two goals are crucial, as Kevin's just outlined. West Germany are on two points with the game in hand. They have scored five goals and conceded three. So they are actually just plus two, and they're on two points. So they need a win against Austria to get through. And Chile have performed admirably, I think, in, in all the games we've watched, are on yeah, zero totally. points. Yeah, They're a loss to the tournament, I think. And, and, you know, you wouldn't expect if they had somehow got through to the second phase they were going to pull up any trees. But they're the type of team that makes a good World Cup great, you know? They were, to- like, they were the ones that helped to make the Austrian game really good. They helped make this game great. And that's what makes great games. You've got two good contested teams, con- contesting teams. Um, it's great depth. Right, game three. And we have some fun to come as well a little bit later in the podcast. But the evening game. Are you the suggesting game that there hasn't been fun so far? Is this fun so far? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Were you not here for the French goalkeeper conversation? <laughs> What's going on with you? You guys are so sensitive. You're so sensitive. What's going on? I was just more fun. I, I, Sorry, couldn't, more. I couldn't get my eight year old to sleep. And once that story, I'm going to play it back to him every night. <laughs> so hang on. Who I'm not making an effort anymore. Keeper? I'm not making any so, more so effort. Five people. foot nine. I know. Five foot the nine. The third keeper was, his name was uh, Dropsy. Dropsy? I, 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 I just love the way <laughs> you said the first of the five. I think if, if I got that but, internet system, uh, I, no, I, I just love the way that Mick said that he was the guy who managed to get to the top of the tree and I just wanted to make like a ladder joke or something. But I I couldn't get it in. So. Oh, in the notes. God. We're going to publish uh, Colin's yeah. notes online afterwards uh, with timestamps. <laughs> Albert Camus, I'm going so for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Honduras nil, Yugoslavia one. All right, we're up to Lamareda and Zaragata. Ooh, lovely. Mm, all right, well, I watched it. Did anyone else watch this? I felt yeah. like I drew the, stro- drew the short straw. Okay, Honduras should have won this game, right? It was a great game, actually. Honduras should have won this Absolutely. game, and a win or a draw would probably have seen them in the reckoning to advance. Uh, the one result that was going to be costly for them was a defeat. And for 87 minutes of this game, like they are the better side. There's a couple of chances for Yugoslavia, but like most of the chances in this game are Honduras going for it. Like really, really good. Like, like a Gilberto running like a 50-meter solo run, uh, Al Oviran style. You know what I mean? They were going for this game. Yeah, a one-two from outside his own box. It's like, it's a pretty incredible. Yeah, now, the thing is, what ultimately undoes them is a penalty concession. And they argue that penalty concession, and actually they end up losing Yearwood, gets sent off because of the nature of the protests and all the rest of it. But in the comments afterwards... In the in the in the press conference, they're questioning the performance of all the referees in the tournament. Like I found an yeah. article. No, oh, well, where, now they're talking. Where they're, where they're talking about <laughs> we weren't beaten by anybody other than the referees. Yeah. Now I've watched this foul, and it is a foul. Yeah. No question. Several times. No this question. This is a cast iron penalty. 
there can be absolutely no dispute about it. There's no requirement for VAR here, Kev. It's like he makes no contact with the ball. This is just man only. Take him down in the box. And it's what you describe he, as a lazy tackle with five minutes yeah, to go lazy. when you're exhausted. Yeah. It's just he throws a leg out and your man he kind of rides it. He rides the tackle. He sees it coming, but it's definitely a penalty. And it, and it is, you're right, Like there's fatigue here because it's 80, it's 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Sestich does so well in that, oh my God, it's such a turn and beats two players. So it is, he does earn it. But like, like, yeah, this is it. Like, Mick, this is the first time. Let me just make sure I'm not over-exaggerating here. Yeah, this is the first time in this tournament where I felt real heartbreak. I'm heartbroken for them at the end. For Yearwood walking off. I don't know if you saw the red card as he walks down that tunnel no, I did. and he pulls the shirt yeah. off. Because like, this is one of those things about what we do, re-watching it, because you feel the passing of time as well. You know, a lot of these players are, a lot of them have passed on. Many, many of them are you know are, are in their older years and you just kind of think back to the memories and how this this must have haunted a lot of the players in the years afterwards because they had done so well and for them like this oh. i don't think there's any doubt about it like i mean there are fellas they just collapse on the field their faces are down into the turf they're clearly emotional crying the goalkeeper is devastated they know they're so close and i mean of all the the minnows and in inverted commas that made this world cup honduras are mm. probably like they're among the most minnowy, you know. I mean, one of the reasons probably that helped them to qualify was the fact that the, the qualifying campaign, Maria, was was in Honduras. So that helped them for a start. Mm-hmm. We've st- we've spoken before about the two-year-long training camp that they had. Well, say, like, maybe the reason they're all so miserable is they're thinking, we have to do two years to go out in the first round. They're going <laughs> to flog us to make a second round. <laughs> like They were probably expecting to be put in a concentration camp for the next four years to oh, be ready for 86. Like, I, you know, I was just thinking about it after watching a bit of the game today and just going back over the notes about these guys and... They, Jesus, they gave it absolutely everything, you know. I mean, from, really from, from well, the you, training camp. But... are out too, right? Like this is, that's yeah. the, the consequence of this game is. Well, not there, not at that well, point. Not, not at that point, but I mean, like at this stage. I mean, the only way they're going out is if Northern Ireland beats Spain. I think we all know Northern Ireland is going to be uh, beating the host. Well, that's, that's not going to happen. Well, I mean, Nor- like, like Northern Ireland, like let's say they get a draw. Then we're into a different scenario because... You know, you've got Spain, Yugoslavia, Northern Ireland, all on three points. And in that instance, as far as I know, it's drawing of lots. Goal, yeah. goal difference, goal scored, drawing a lot. That's the three. Yeah. yeah. But like just on, just to finish the Honduran thing, I mean, the other thing that, again, how would we possibly, how would anybody really seriously have possibly known about a lot of stuff that was going on? But like a good share of their players you know, there was a draw to the United States, not to play football, but just to get jobs and stuff. So they, they lost players to America, you know, before the World Cup. One of their best players just got a job in America and wouldn't commit to go to the World Cup, you know. Um, Tony Lang, who was their, their, their top striker, came on against Northern Ireland and scored a goal, but he was carrying an injury into the World Cup and he's a substitute again against Yugoslavia. But in nine, from 1980 to now, they've played like 35, 36 games, you know, which is a lot. That's a lot. And that's only the international ones. They probably had club friendlies and stuff as well. But like you had um, a guy like Porfirio Betancourt who was pulled in. Who, he was, by the way, had a chance to seal this game. Yeah. And like he's a legend now. I mean, he was one of the greatest players to ever play uh, college soccer in America. Uh, he, 
I think he's, I mean, he's considered like one of the, the one of maybe the player of the decade or certainly in, he'd be in that conversation in the eighties in America, you know? Um, but he wasn't really in the scene, but he was pulled in before the world cup and he ended up being the top scorer in their friendliest part of the world cup. But you mentioned Gilberto there, key man for them. Like they had some fantastic players. The other thing that always struck me as well, Ucles, Ucles, the manager was a real idealist. Like he kept scrapbooks he was really into English football. The money that they gathered, like there was no, um, they didn't really, they didn't really look for money. You know, I mean, some of, some of the players who came in were looking for to get covered expenses and stuff. They just were, they were just left aside. Uclets years afterwards said the most beautiful thing to remember is that none of us had financial solvency at the time. There were no cars or houses. We simply did what we should have done for the country. There was, it was a real, you know, communal effort to do the best for their team and see how far I could get them. And by God, like, you know, I, I, I was, I was so disappointed as well at the end of this to realize they weren't going, they weren't going any further. I have two questions. One for Kieran, first of all, Kieran. like I hear this a lot. So maybe you can, your big brain will tell me this. We hear a lot about money in this world cup. Is it like, you know, Northern Ireland drawn about bonuses and, you know, we were going on about the last episode. It, it, it comes up an awful lot. It, is, is that you're spending so much time on your international teams? Is that a thing of the time? I don't know. Ostensibly, this is a professional sport. This isn't the Corinthian age. They are, and in the case of the Hondurans, like, I'm not certain that they'd all have been fully professional. One of them is on a scholarship in the US, for instance. There's a value on the time that they gave up to represent their country. So when we hear all those discussions about how much players are getting, I'm not bothered by that. There's, There's a value to their time. Now... If you get into the excessive amounts and some of the arguments about what what should that amount be, but uh, like in this instance, I don't think the money matters. The, the bottom line in this okay. game is when you're picking your team of the day, I'm only nominating one player, and that's Pantelic in goals because he saved Yugoslavia time after oh, time. I had him down. Now, I have him down. The, the penalty, yeah. by the way, Amazing. was like sweetly struck by a man heading to Arsenal. Presumably, he'd reached the age of departure you're allowed to leave Yugoslavia at a particular age Honduras were the team in this and it actually because their kit is so 70s retro as opposed to 80s genuine it looked a 70s team playing against an 80s team and just to clarify on the point of money there Robin just to get into the nitty gritty it was reported at the time that Honduras got $600,000 at the end of it all for actually participating at all in the World Cup but all the money went to the Federation which you'd imagine uh, was then passed on to the uh, yeah the whoever was the time whoever was in, in, in yeah I, exactly I, I'd say the dictatorship were there going you got how much yeah that'll pay <laughs> that'll pay for the two year training camp thanks <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly Kevin I want to ask you uh, as we've said it already but you have the memories of the time are Honduras underrated as an underdog story from this World Cup no but I think they get lost in in our context, because Northern Ireland are in their group. So Northern Ireland are the team that we all remember. And we kind of forget yeah. about Honduras. And if you take Honduras in the context yeah. of El Salvador, you also qualified with them in the same tournament. El Salvador lose 10-1 to Hungary. Honduras okay. are fighting their heads off, drawing with the, drawing with the hosts in a, in a bear pit in their first game. And then pushing Yugoslavia, another country who no longer exists, all the way in their last game to almost qualify. So they're completely the opposite from what El Salvador were. But I think we lose the context of them because Northern Ireland are the thing that we all remember in the same group. And the irony of that is that Billy Bingham 
when he's speaking publicly about Northern Ireland's style of play is he's anxious about being like El Salvador. He's anxious about Northern Ireland being cut open. Honduras have no such fears. They've got endeavour, ambition. They go for it. But like, keep in mind that, and we definitely mentioned this in the previous episode, that when El Salvador lost that, ten, that game 10-1 to Hungary, the following day, the Honduras coach put number 10, he wrote number 10 on their blackboard in, in, at, at their base and said, you know, keep this in mind. That's before they play Spain and they go out and they are stern and stubborn in that game. But again, I go back to this thing about having ambition, the same as Algeria. This is what makes them endearing. Like there are other teams of similar limited ability, let's say, in the competition that do not show any ambition whatsoever. I mean, these guys had a psychologist yeah. in the squad. They had a sports psychologist. Well, they had a psychologist who, who was working with sports people. Um, they also leaned on their religion a lot. You know, they had priests and pastors who, uh, who, who said mass. Yes, who said mass and, and, and kind of brought into their sermons kind of, you know, it was almost psychology in itself. I mean, uh, Ucles, again, the manager recalled when they had an evangelical pastor, he was the one, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, sort of quoting him here, he was the one who created the song that the boys always sang. They were moved to say that there is no God as great as you. And he added to the lyrics, in Spain, we will not be ashamed because the Lord will sustain us with your hand. They had a priest from Costa Rica, his surname was Huerta, who was in the church and gave very good sermons. Again, I'm just paraphrasing Ucles here. I asked him if you could give us masses to inject a different vision. Perhaps we were dwarfs on the outside, but that made us gigantic. And that was worth a lot because we grew spiritually. So they were pulling on all sorts of cultural, spiritual, innate things to them, as well as their football and ability to bring the whole thing together. And, I, you know, again, another team that are going out that are really lost to the competition. Like you said there, Michael, for a World Cup to be a great World Cup and something that you remember, you need one or two teams to kind of come out of the pack and do something it's kind of yeah. whatever you want to call it. That's maybe a bit grandiose, but like a noble effort or something that kind of tugs at your heartstrings and says, "God, they were great." Remember what they did, like Cameroon in nineteen ninety. So in this yeah. World Cup, you can pay. We talked about Czechoslovakia, who were European champions in seventy six, third place in Europe in nineteen eighty. They do nothing in this tournament, whereas mm. Honduras have a crack, and whether they get there or they don't. That's what you remember. And their players will yeah. remember that for their lives. They gave it a go. Yeah, so you could, like, just on Yugoslavia, I'm just looking at their stats here, live as we're doing it, right? They get to Euro 88, sorry, they get to Euro 84, lose all three games. No World Cup 86, no Euro 88, and then they come to a podcast you can listen to in another area of the internet, the Italian 90 World Cup podcast one day at a time that we did. And we talk about them and we love them. Okay, because we can jump around time zones. We're allowed to do that in, in uh, the year that we're recording this. We love that team, but this team has left no impression on me whatsoever. No, um, you know, that like if you take 1990 as, and actually the two tournaments we've done prior to this, so if you take Euro 92 as the end of the Federation of Yugoslavia, okay, what we know as Yugoslavia, which is a federation of a number of countries. And in Italia 90, it's coming to that point. We see some issues leading into the tournament. It's starting now. Like Tito's died. The solution to his death, you know, having had whatever amount of years he was in power, they've had a dictator. They've had a stern hand at the tiller for good or bad. What happens after his death and his solution is they rotate the presidency annually. 
So you go from a period of dictatorship and what they would deem to be stability to utter chaos over the next eight or nine years. And that inevitably leads to the splintering of the Federation because nationalism emerges in all of the various republics within it. And I, I'd say it was just very hard for them to gain any unity. The other thing you have to remember, and again, we talked in the previous episode about rugby in New Zealand and Australia. Yugoslavia are pretty handy at basketball for the latter part of the 80s. Um, so, you know, you, you tend to get those, those peaks in different sports. Uh, and I think that's what happens. But when they do emerge in 1990, we're talking about a World mm. Championship winning side coming to a World Cup, one that propels Red Star Belgrade to the very top of an ever-increasingly commercial European Cup. Um, So they're a joy to watch. And if people people want to know more about Yugoslavia in that era, go back and listen to the Italian 90 episodes. Like, they're they're one of the teams of that tournament. Now, where I was going to go wrong is, sadly, Honduras are gone home. But before we come to our team of the day, I just wanted to... We've done this on the previous, where we've coincided with Thursdays. It's Charts Day. But I'm not going to go with music Ooh. this week. I've, uh, I've rooted out right. what the top 10 movies were at the U.S. box office. Uh-huh. On this oh, day. Well, Colin's just had a sharp outtake of breath there. This is interesting. In 1982. Ready. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to give you um, some clues for each. And I might regret this instantly because I'm just looking at number 10 going, I don't know what that movie is. <laughs> so actually, for number 10, I'm just going to tell you. I can see Google in the reflection of your faces. The number 10 is just a movie called Visiting Hours. I've, I've never seen this since. <laughs> number nine is a sword and sandals epic starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. What do you think it was? Uh, Conan the Barbarian, I'd say, is it? Yep. Yep, which uh, had was now okay. dropping down the charts. It had been number five mm, the previous week. Yeah, number been. eight. I'm imagining a scoreboard that isn't electronic. You know, someone's just put yeah. one point. <laughs> <laughs> one. Flip it over. Oh no! Uh, nice. Number eight also involves a sword, but it's an animated movie. Um, and it's a new so- entry on this. With the sword and the stone, with that. No, you're close. No, it's a bit older, was it? Or and the sorcerer. Ah. Uh, number seven, um, holding its position at seven, and I'd have to be very careful. What clue I give for this movie? Because you might be surprised to learn that this was a movie that our parents definitely would have told us you can never watch. <laughs> oh, Porky's. Um, it was Porky's Cab, yeah. you know. Oh, wow. Well. I may have watched that at the time. and number six is a movie named for the reasons that our parents wouldn't allow us to watch Porky's because it was full of hanky panky all right now this is good year this is this is is vintage so far (laughs) it's gonna get good it's gonna get good Christ new entry at number five a sequel to a musical Gre- from the 70s starring Michelle Pfeiffer. Grease 2. Uh, yeah, Grease 2. I like on away. Number uh, four. Can anyone, by the way, whoa, whoa. Can anybody remember? Who was, who was the John Travolta in Grease 2? Uh, was it someone famous? It's the guy who plays Shooter McGavin. 
and uh, Happy Gilmore. Oh, you're right. Happy yeah. Gilmore. It's, it's like Christopher really somewhere. Yeah. Jesus, that's a good one, Kevin. Jesus, I think no, maybe hold on. Maybe that's, that's maybe he's a bad guy. No, no, actually, hold on, hold oh, on. Well. John Travolta character is Maxwell Caulfield. God, where did ah. I come from? Out of my head, English actor. Well done. Wow. Actually, Rob, oh, Rob, right, Rob yeah, you're dead right. Just, that would have been a tiebreaker. Yeah, yeah give that man an extra it, point. It was the reverse yeah. of the previous yeah. one. It was yeah. like a foreign yeah. man arrives in to meet the American yeah, yeah. woman. There you go. That was yeah. A, yeah. Nice. Uh, the obviously, obviously, Colin, Colin had that in his notes. I, I was happy with this. I was the guy who said Grace too. Okay, come on. I was doing my victory lap. And I'm assuming that this is still in the cinema, like since like the previous Halloween, because otherwise I don't know why it's there in middle of June. Is a, I suppose, a kind of a, it's a horror movie, I suppose, or a scary movie about moving furniture. Poltergeist. A poltergeist or something? Poltergeist. Bang on. Number two, right. or sorry, number three, dropped one Poltergeist. Po- Hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. Poltergeist isn't about moving furniture. Have you seen Poltergeist? No, I just assumed <laughs> He doesn't like horror movies. You know why he doesn't like my horror movies and you yeah. did that. You should have just said Carol Ann, and we'd all been jumping over our microphones. <laughs> Number just going like, imagine a horror movie about like furniture removal. Like, I can write that. <laughs> Put the rock in it, it's a hit. Yeah. It would be like Carrie, it's, it's where you get eaten by a couch. Yeah. <laughs> um, number three, and dropping from a place. Is the third of a boxing franchise? Rocky three. Uh, Rocky three. Rocky three. Yeah. Definitely. Rocky three. Yeah. Mickey's revenge. <laughs> um, number two. Sorry, the whole time I'm just keeping score. Right. I think it was Cumberland. <laughs> Cumberland. Yeah. It was indeed. Absolutely. Number two is having dropped from the number one spot the previous week is a Star Trek movie. I'm going to tell you. Which one it was, and you can tell me if you can tell me the subtitle. Star Trek Two. Is the that's not the, the uh, Wrath of Khan. Was it the Voyage Home? Wrath of Khan. <laughs> was it? Well done. That was a guess. And can he, anybody tell me who Khan was? Oh, oh, you know him from Fantasy Island and Dynasty. Blake Carrot. R- Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Do you play for Honduras? Colin, you're losing the tiebreakers here now. So Should have been. Uh, in, in, in at number one. Ooh, um, in at number one. In at number one. And, you know, we're height of summer here. This is summer blockbuster mm. stuff. It's a movie starring Drew Barrymore. E.T. E.T. Oh, E.T. E. 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 Oh, e. oh, that's, that's the only one I knew. <laughs> in it's the only one. Who won that, Rob? Are you keeping score? I won. Oh, well done, well done. Yeah, 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 this is the first time. Well done, Ross. Colin won. Uh, just be, just before we move on, just a couple of things from Colin the won. news of the day. Uh, and this is from the mm-hmm. this new summary from the New York Times, just as Colin might find a couple of these interests. Israeli forces attacked Syrians just south of the Beirut-Damascus road as a ceasefire announced by Israel collapsed. The Israelis used planes, tanks and artillery in intense day-long exchanges of fire and fighting was reported in at least nine places along the highway. The American embassy is closing today, and all Americans in Lebanon have been urged to leave. There you go. So there's an escalating yeah. mm. situation there. 
Uh, Israel said heavy fighting was continuing in Beirut as well as along the Beirut Damascus. An Israeli military spokesman said the Syrian and Palestinian forces had first broken the ceasefire. So we got a bit of what about going on. Yeah. Also, unfortunately, the England fans are at it again. Uh, no, they don't Sad. mention that in the New York Times news summary no. of today. Tell me about this. No. no, they wouldn't. No, there was 13 injured and in fighting in San Sebastian. Uh, between uh, eight English, five Spanish, just around the same time that the local governor had ordered a clampdown on the foreign fans who he said had abused Spanish hospitality and committed all sorts of outrageous and violent acts. So they're getting a bit sick of this now. Um, as There was trouble at the French game um, and there's been trouble again now. So, you know, things are, things are going uh, sadly familiar. Taking a sadly familiar sort of a trajectory here. Tomorrow is day 13, right? And are we going to pick a team? Friday, June, Friday, wait, wait, for, 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 oh yeah, we are. You're going, to, you're going to tell us that that was Friday the 13th, aren't you? No, it's Friday, June 25th. But I was going to say that we get a two-day break as well. So I think not only should we pick a team, Mick, oh, but tomorrow wait. I think we should pick a whole United team of the first round. Oh, wow, we better geez. go back over all our notes. I think that'd be fun. Will we do that? Yeah, that's for tomorrow. Sorry, today, I'm Collins. Because I didn't forget, although it's, it seems like I forgot, but I didn't forget. Good man, Today, Rob. of course, we have to pick a team of the day. And if Betancourt is not in it, I am leaving this podcast. <laughs> who wants to Who wants to lead this one and we can criticise the team? Goalkeepers, Pankers. Yugoslavian keeper, yeah. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no bother. What uh, formation are we taking? Would we like four defenders, three, sweeper? What would we like? No, there wasn't a lot of defenders shining today, so as little as possible, three of them. I, I thought usual. Amaros was excellent today for France, I thought. Mm. Yes, I do that. No objections. After that, I'm out. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin who else from, from your game? Jires uh, and Platini should be in there somewhere. That's probably yeah. a lot of them. I agree game. with that. Dingini was pretty decent as well, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And actually, Platini was quite Algerian is more deserving, I'd say, than the French. Yeah, you're probably right oh, there. Oh, we right Colin chiming in here now. Give no, me some I, names, Colin. There was a Nouradine Karouchi. I'm not just plucking any name, but he was the rock at the uh, at the back for uh, Algeria. No. So our, our defenders are Nouradine Karouchi and... Who did we have Amaros. Amaros. I, I, like, I mean, for I'm going to more, make a shout for Jaime Villegas. Just because uh, Honjorn is looks like a nice name. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> We're We've... not picking horses to flip and Sligo races here. Sure, he's delighted with the shout out. No, I really am at this stage. I'm just kind of who could I pick from Honduras? Can't pick Yorod because he's sent oh, off. God. So, um, am I? I'm, I'm loath to ask. Is was he a defender? Yeah, he was. Yeah, that's our third man. Yeah, okay. No. okay. Oh, come here. Sorry. We have to put Alan Antonio Costley in because I just like his name. Costley's a good had player. A chance and it was, he actually literally had a chance that he should have taken. And you know what it was? You know what type of miss it was? Let's leave it at that. I won't say it. I will not say it. But you know what I mean? It was a dropsy miss, was it? Never mind. <laughs> Dropsy miss. No, put Costly in there. All right. Um, yeah. In, in, like, look, I've said Benton Core up front. Who else up front? And then we work our way back to midfield. Anyone else? Well, I, I think. Um, pick, pick our strikers. We've got to have. The, well, Assad has, Assad. Assad has Assad to be in there. Assad. Assad has to be. And not just for the goals. Yeah. He's, he was a fantastic player. It's, it's nice to have a nice Assad. I yeah, think we should finally. have included him just for that. Mm. 
What about um? What about Ben Saula? I thought he was terrific. Yeah, and he scored a cracker. Yeah, yeah. great goal. Yeah, yeah. So I said Ben Saula. And Jerez. 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 Jerez and Platini in there. Um, Magier. Yeah, also Magier on the left. Yeah, terrific player. Yeah, let's 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 look at them. Are we there? Do we have a team? Looks like it's happened to me. Yeah. Hang on. Let's just um. Let's just give me a second there. I'm just gonna write them out. Uh, okay, so what what do we got? We got Pantelic in goal. Yep. We have we have Amaros, Karuji, and Viegas across the back. Yeah. Three defenders. I, I, That's how I, we're rolling. I genuinely, I, if somebody has a better defender than Viegas, Coford, I just literally went. I wonder if he's the golfer's father. In yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, across midfield at the moment, we have some class of a sort of a combination of French Latini. and Algerians. Yeah, yeah right. Platini, Jerez, Magier. There's a slot there. I'm, I'm going to make a case here. Um, in the absence of oh. William Joseph Padden, I, I, I was, I liked Susic in this game for Yugoslavia. I look. I was about to say it. I felt it was a bit of a cliche, but I agree with you. You could still see his class, like so. Is that it should be seeing his class. Really? This he's in his prime at this stage. <laughs> yeah, I know but right. the team, the performance wasn't great, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Sorry, forgive me. So, Susic, so, and then we'll just leave four midfielders for a minute, right? Because this gives us an option of a third striker if we want one. So, we've got Assad and Ben Saula from Algeria, and there's one more gap. I'm just going to throw Benjamin in Cor. two guys from Benjamin Chile who, who caught my eye Yanez, mm-hmm. what do they call him? Yeah. The Chilean Pele or the Chilean Maradona, whichever, and Letelier, who came on, who played really well, by the uh, way, Letelier in the German game. So I'm just going to put those two out there and whichever oh, you're drawn I'm okay with those. that, but I'm just fighting for Betancourt here. He oh, Betancourt. Betancourt. Yeah, Would you want to put Betancourt in? Passing. Yeah. Well, put Betancourt in. He's Put him in. Ah, Great name. Put too. him in. That's your team. So Pantelic, Amaras, Karuji, Viegas, Platini, Jerez, Susis, Betancourt, Magier, and Assad and Ben Saula. That is a... So, <laughs> where are they now, team, if ever yeah. there was one? So, so what are we doing tomorrow, then? What's on tomorrow? Quite enough, I'd say. Oh. I was building up towards that before I remembered I had another God, job. To you know, I'd be thinking about Spain Northern Ireland game. Jamie. Oh, how boring that be. Pearl Northern Ireland. But God love them. They're going to struggle. Surely. England, Kuwait. What could they possibly mm. Obviously, we're all. There's only one game to watch tomorrow, folks, for drama, for everything on the line, for players just losing themselves for their country. Austria are going to bust the gut and beat West Germany, surely. Well, yeah, they're going to take Germany. care of those pesky robots. Cannot wait. Cannot yeah. wait. Doing Austria oh, and Do you know, know what this means as well? Do you know what this means yeah. as well? It means I get to pull up my Tony Schumacher book. Yeah! And read the random book of Schumacher. Book of Schumacher. And read random what stuff. What height was he? That's my. I, I, I haven't got to that <laughs> bit that yet. Random isn't in there. <laughs> I haven't got to that bit yet, unfortunately. But he's a tall lad. Good hair. Lads. Hang on, before we go. They, apparently, at halftime in the Yugoslavia game, they couldn't use their dressing room because the toilets stank. <laughs> toilets were blocked off. Um, yes. And the reason that they were blocked up, wait, you hear this now. The organizing committee were blaming journalists the media for blocking up the toilets. So never has there been a World Cup where the media are accused of being full of. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. 
Shabo. Full of hats. There, I tell you what, there ain't, there ain't no conspiracy theories involved in that one anyway, it's a... Catch you tomorrow, folks. Adios. Ciao.